The text we'll be reading this morning is actually not from Acts 2. We're going to take off from what we've just heard and build on that. But I do want to ask that you'd find Romans 8. We'll be uh, starting at verse 14 shortly. Pentecost itself was not a new thing. On that day, Peter stood up and spoke, and those tongues of fire came down, and the Holy Spirit came down on the church on that birthday of the church. Pentecost was one of the three pilgrimage festivals that was celebrated every year in Israel, celebrated in the land. It took place 50 days after Passover. All three of the pilgrimage festivals where the uh, the men would travel to Jerusalem, that's why they're pilgrimage, uh, were around different harvests. Passover, uh, around the harvest of barley. The uh, Pentecost was around the harvest of wheat, particularly as the wheat first comes up is what's happening, and they take the first fruits of that and make something out of it and present it to the Lord, recognizing God's bounty in the land that God has given them. Right? They didn't deserve the land. God gave it of God's own free will. And God blessed them with of actual fruit of the land that they could then show their expression of trust as they gave the first fruits of what came up of that harvest. Much like we're encouraged as a discipline and we give, let's say to the church, to not simply give the leftovers, but the first fruit as an act of trust. That we say, God, you've been faithful and I know you will be faithful. Same thing here. That's where it comes from. They expect that God is going to continue to be faithful as they're faithful and returning thanks. Now, when Jesus dies and is resurrected, 50 days later, what happens? Pentecost. The first fruits of the new life are celebrated. The wind of the Spirit comes through God's very presence among his people. God's really giving that first fruits in that early church moment. And when Peter speaks, we heard the text this morning, Peter speaks of, uh, in these days, God, it was prophesied that this would come, the Spirit would be poured out on your sons and daughters, and they would prophesy in this day, when the Spirit is poured out. And after he gives this long address, people say, well, what are we supposed to do? Now that the Spirit is here, now that Jesus has done this work, and he says, repent and be baptized turn. And he rounds it out and he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. That's the first Pentecost. Now we're talking about the Holy Spirit today on Pentecost because that is the key piece to recognize in Pentecost, the, the Holy Spirit coming down on these first believers and that that happens with anybody who says yes to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is part of that package deal that comes in us and works through us. But there are a lot of different things that can happen when we, when we start to talk about the Holy Spirit or different understandings of what the Spirit does. Uh, some people hear Holy Spirit and they only think of speaking in tongues or falling over or healing or that sort of thing. And speaking in tongues and healing, valid things that the Holy Spirit does. They can be used correctly, they can be misused like anything in the church. Sometimes we hear Holy Spirit and we think, yeah, yeah, I know that the Holy Spirit's there, but we really don't have a real tangible experience of the Holy Spirit. We can have all kinds of different reactions. 
I want to bring in another thing that seems like it doesn't have anything to do with the topic, but, but let's make something out of it. We also stand in a time when, culturally speaking, where church and culture kind of come close, but maybe don't always touch very, very tightly. Uh, we come in a time when many people will still claim Christianity, but they don't really know what that means. They'll still even put themselves uh, the title of Christian, or they'll be perplexed by what Christians believe. They don't really know, but, but they'll sometimes take that on, but, but say, I'm a different kind of Christian, or something like that. Or there's different ways to Jesus, I, but they take on the title, but they don't really know what that means. And I want to ask a question as we consider the work of the Holy Spirit and what it means to be a believer, because Paul brings those two together in Romans and asks this question as we head towards Romans. If like the first Pentecost, if the fire of the Spirit sparked above us right now, would it be over your head? It's a dangerous question. If we're sitting here right now, if the, if the fire of the Holy Spirit sparked above us right now, would it be over your head? Would it be just over your neighbor's head? Is the Spirit in you is the question. When Peter's talking about salvation... When Paul's talking about salvation, when it's talked about in the New Testament, salvation is from a whole host of things, but principally from wrong worship that leads to death, ultimately. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. What Peter's talking about is the corrupt generation that happens in every generation that worships self, that worships money, control, sex, power, you name it, anything but God. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Salvation is from that and the curse that's put on us by that and by living into that. And so in Romans 8, Paul gives a commentary on what it means to be leading the Spirit-filled life and the identity that comes with that. So let's go to verse 14 of Romans 8. It should come up on the screen. Paul writes, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. If we want to define the believer and who's not, what is a Christian and what's not, it's right here. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And when Paul says spirit here, he's not simply talking about the little decisions that we often talk about in the church. That's, those are implications of what Paul's talking about. So I was led by the Spirit to do this. I was prompted by the Spirit to have this conversation. Right? I believe the Holy Spirit called me to serve as your senior pastor, just as the Holy Spirit spoke to the search committee to, to call me here. That was a Spirit-led thing. But Paul's talking about something that stands above those smaller decisions where the Spirit might lead. He's talking about the full trajectory of a heart and life. Is it Spirit-led through and through, from beginning to end? That's what he's, asked, that's what he's pointing out to us. And when we hear of spirit all through scripture, we hear wind and breath that comes with it purposely. In the book of Genesis, when the spirit hovers over the waters, God's presence there, when God makes humans, what does the spirit do? Breathes physical life into humans, animates them after they're created in God's image. Gives them really meaning with that, but gives them that animating breath that we still breathe today. The fact that we can breathe air, draw oxygen, and, and exhale is all because the Spirit initiated that and continues to sustain us and give us that gift. That's God's common grace at work among us. So at Pentecost, we have the next level of breath going on. The giver of new life 
is now here. We may be breathing the air in the real world by God's common grace, but now salvation is here that gives us, even though we're dead, walking around with the breath of life in us, God's new life gives us salvation from the curse of sin and all the effects of sin. Jesus, by his death and resurrection on the cross, has fixed the broken relationship we have with God, that even though we breathed, we were dead in our sins, and has put new life in those who say yes to Jesus Christ and allow him to forgive them of their sins. That's the new life. That's the breath of the Spirit on that Pentecost that's still offered to us today. When uh, Stephanie and I and our, we had two kids at the time before, when we, we started the last church I was at in Colorado Springs, our house was at 6,600 feet elevation. I checked this morning, we're at 1,100 feet in Lincoln, give or take. Um, so that's a different elevation gain. We moved from Lincoln to Colorado Springs. And in that first week, we hadn't quite acclimated, and yet we did a, a, like a walk, a March of Dimes walk uh, on that Saturday, the first week we moved there, and we were gasping for breath. We weren't quite acclimated yet. And we tried to eat something, too, as we walked, which was just a giant mistake. That was even worse. You know, just, this is hard to do for walking a mile, pushing two kids in a stroller, that kind of thing. You're gasping. Not enough oxygen. But what we have to realize is that so many people around us are gasping for spiritual breath like that. And even some of us might be gasping for spiritual breath in our brokenness, looking everywhere to God or everywhere except God for relief. And God, through his spirit, is the only one who's going to give us the breath of new life that's going to make us whole again and whole in him. See, God's salvation is the very breath of life, and there's no substitute. Let's go on to verse 15, because Paul pushes a little further with what this spirit-led life means. Paul says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So when the Spirit descended, the believers were given a gift. Paul says uh, that that gift moves you from the status of slave to son. That's a little puzzling to us probably because those are two categories we don't sit next to each other in our day and age. But it's a powerful image that Paul is using. It's not a Jewish image because if you look at the Old Testament, uh, you see that there's very little, because he's talking about adoption, there's very little language about adoption in this sense, in the Old Testament. A couple spots. Uh, There's nothing really in the law about adoption in any true sense. There are some things that taking care of another, you know, brother's family, that kind of thing. This is a a Greek or Roman image. Paul's writing in the Roman Empire. Greco-Roman is the world that they're living in. Um, And this is an image that people would have understood, even if it didn't happen really often around them, but it happened often enough, they would have known what he's talking about. And so we have to understand kind of the, the background to understand the power of the image he's got here. In the ancient Roman Empire of Paul's day, uh, the father in a home, particularly you're talking about a Roman citizen, but the father in the home had the power called patria potestas, power of the father is what that means. He had the power of life and death 
over his children, particularly. In fact, there's a very famous letter uh, where a father is writing back to his wife who is pregnant with a child, and he writes in the letter, hey, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, get rid of it. He had that power, life and death. He could choose when that baby's born, do I keep it or do I expose it, typically is what they would do. Take it to the dump. Sons were valued as heirs. That's why Paul uses this specific language there. Children, though, were functionally, legally, slaves in the household. They would be treated well, perhaps, but legally speaking, they had the same status as slaves in the house. And they could never really outgrow being under the authority of the patria potestas of their father. As long as the father's alive, they always have some uh, level of, he always has some level of authority over his children, no matter what age they are, until he dies. So this is a powerful thing that you're dealing with in Paul's day. And he's using a powerful image because then if you needed to adopt, if an adoption were to occur from one family to another, you had to not just legally separate from the father, but basically you're manumitting. It's the same process basically as manumitting a slave, freeing a slave from one father's rule. And then they're kind of in the middle there for a moment. And then there's a second action of the actual legal adoption taken before a local judge or magistrate, usually with about seven witnesses as well. It's a two-step process. It was not an easy process. There was a lot of complication to it. You're freeing from one family, releasing, and then putting in another family. So Paul's using a very powerful image of what's happening in this adoption here. They would have understood the power of that image. Now I want to point out something else that we should bring into this that we don't want to push what Paul's saying too far, but let's just consider one other piece, not about Roman adoption, but just about adoption in general. And that is uh, Stephanie and I, um, my wife and I went through foster training a few years ago. We, I know we've got families in the congregation that have done admirable work in foster parenting um, and foster to adopt, and, and that's good work. We need more people doing that kind of work. It was really fascinating to go through the training. Uh, we decided now is not the time in our family. We couldn't take on any more. But as a pastor and then just as a parent, it was really useful training. And one of the most remarkable things to me, um, as I've dealt with other foster families and some other people too, um, is the power that the connection between a biological child and their biological parents that is, we were told in training, you never, ever, 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 ever badmouth a child's biological parents. They could come from the worst possible situation in the world, coming to the best possible situation. But that biological connection is so strong. And that's a God-designed thing. God designed us to have those connections with our biological parents. It's a God-designed thing. But the connection is so strong. And if we recognize that, if we recognize how strong God has built that in here, can we also recognize something about God as our true father? You see, God is actually our true father. And when we're being freed from slavery, we're being freed back to our true father. And I want to suggest that the, the, those who are spiritually floundering, looking for that connection, are looking for it because God built it into us to have a connection with our Heavenly Father that's so strong 
that we're aching for it, whether we realize it or not. And we're estranged from our Father, and then he says, guess what happens? Through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit then coming down and working in you, it manumits you from the slavery of this generation because we're told and where it's reinforced in us, around us, as if it's normal to be separated from our Father. But that's the slavery that we live in up until the, the Spirit frees us to put us back into connection with our real Heavenly Father. God's Spirit returns us to our true Father. And Paul presses it just a little further, and he says, By that Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. He uses two languages here. He uses Aramaic and he uses Greek. Aramaic would have connected him with Jesus, which appears to be why he uses it. Who would have said Abba? Who never would have said the Greek word for Father, probably. Through the Spirit, not only then are we adopted to sonship, but now all of a sudden we can see where he takes it next. We actually have solidarity with Jesus as co-heirs, as brothers and sisters with Christ under that Father. And so Paul pushes that a little bit further. If we go to verses 16 and 17. He says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So by that spirit, God confirms if we are actually his. He confirms that we are his own and have have said yes and have rejoined the family by the power of the Spirit. This isn't something that's automatically done. Often we spend our times looking for something else to fill in that connection that we can only have with our Heavenly Father. But God confirms that we are His own by this Spirit, and I think it's, you can find internal ways and external ways that God does this that we can, can kind of measure out. I'm going to suggest to you an internal and external way that we can see that God would confirm that were his. And the first one is this. If the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are his, then we worship God naturally. If we're really led by the Spirit. It's not an effort. Now, some days it might be harder than others, as it is with any relationship that we would have in this world. But as a general rule, it's not going to take a lot of effort for us to feel the need and the desire to worship God. I'm not simply talking about the Sunday morning experience, although that's certainly a part of it. My, uh, I crossed the line of 40 last year. So far, so good. Um, I'm, I'm doing all right. And uh, my sister, I have one sister. She's a few years older than me. She crossed that line a few years ago. My wife, who is an only child, was sitting across the room, though, when the, the day my sister turned 40. And I remember I was talking to her on the phone. And uh, and I said in the course of conversation, well, you know, you're old now. And Stephanie from across the room said, you can't say that. You can't tell her that she's old. I'm like, no, no, I'm pretty sure that's in the little brother code, right? That's like paragraph four, subsection B, that you have to be moderately to mildly annoying to your sister from time to time. That's, part, that's a job description, for goodness sakes, right? But here's the thing. I can say it as a brother. Somebody else might not be able to say that, Right? We can say things about kind of our own family system, but if somebody else starts to criticize our family system, those are fighting words, aren't they, all of a sudden, right? You, you don't have the right to say that. I do, but you don't have the right to say that. See, we're natural defenders of our own family. We have a strong kinship. 
The same is going to be true if we're children of the living God, recognizing our Heavenly Father. We're going to have that kinship. It's going to grow over time because the Spirit is working in us to renovate our heart and eliminate the sinful part of us and put in the God-driven part of us, healing us. And we're going to worship naturally. We're going to see the connection more and more the more we worship. The other part, maybe a little more external than internal, is that we're going to worship God with God's people regularly. And that's going to be a desire that we have. And we're going to miss it when we don't. And this isn't just an advertisement for Sunday morning worship. Again, that's not the only way that we worship God. We worship certainly when we gather in groups and studies and when we do service together. You worship actually when you're doing what God wants when you're out in the world, away from everybody, at work or in the home. But we're going we're gonna to do it with other believers particularly because that kind of confirms the family connection that we have with God's people. We're brothers and sisters, co-heirs together. The one last thing I would point out from this verse uh, that Paul brings up is that he brings up the issue of both suffering and glory, that we're going to be co-heirs with Jesus Christ in both of those things, not just one of those things. How much would we wish we could just have the glory without the difficult moments of following Jesus Christ? That's not the way it works. Paul says you're going you're gonna to share in the suffering. So God's spirit fuels us through trials, through suffering. We should recognize that more and more it's even being reported by more official sources uh, that worldwide persecution of believers is going up and is getting pretty severe in many spots in the world. And that, among that population of people who suffer most, they not only get the suffering part, but if you read their stories, they typically get the glory part way more than we do. They've lived through the suffering as co-heirs with Jesus Christ, and they recognize what they're inheriting, the hope and the glory that is to come. And I would suggest, if you're not in tune with those, our brothers and sisters, our co-heirs around the world who suffer, I would suggest finding a way, write it down in your bulletin, I'm going to find a way to, to make sure I can pray for persecuted brothers and sisters, get the, uh, there's a big world book I can show you in my office, get one of those, you can borrow mine for a while if you want, uh, subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs, get on a newsletter for a not-for-profit around the world, a uh, mission organization so you can get their e-newsletters, it won't cost you a dime, you can even contribute if you want, but they'll give you information on what's going on in different parts of the world so you can pray and pray specifically for different parts of the world for our brothers and sisters who suffer. And yet their testimony is powerful because they recognize the glory. So here's one from the Voice of the Martyrs, May edition. Uh, you could pick out a bunch. I just picked out this one, a very short story. Two women in the Arabian Peninsula, it talks about, who live in an entirely and exclusively Muslim area. They both now are our co-heirs with Christ. They came to know Jesus. They found a few other believers in their community, but not many. They're mostly, they feel the cultural pressure very strong. They're constantly preached at and, and told to convert back to Islam. And part of one of those things is a strong cultural component that, that's held over them and that is a, a piece of this that they've given up is that they probably will, it, it, it's nearly impossible for them to find a husband, which is a huge cultural pressure, of course, and something they've probably grown up looking forward to. Getting married to somebody who's not a Muslim, in their case, is pivotal and probably almost impossible. 
they've discovered. And the story rounds out that uh, now that they found all this, they found a church of people, but it says, despite the sacrifice these women have made, they say the reward of heaven is reason enough to follow Jesus. And we hear that story all over the world with those who suffer and also share in his glory. They recognize the glory that is to come. And they know that the spirit is there and the suffering too. Jesus suffered. They're his sisters. They suffer too. But they know the glory. There were three, by the way, pilgrimage festivals that Israel celebrated. We talked about Passover briefly. 50 days after Passover came Pentecost, the first fruits, in this case, of God's spirit at work among God's people. Still offered to us today for those who follow Jesus Christ. The third one was the final harvest at the end of the season. That's the glory. That's what we look forward to, the return of Christ. And those who are led by the Spirit, who are the children of God, who recognize their true Father, are the ones who are going to be put back in that right relationship so they can enjoy that glory one day forever and ever. So I asked the question we started with, if the fire of the Spirit sparked above us right now, would it be over your head? Are you led by the Spirit today so that your entire life reflects God's presence wherever you go? Before we sing our our final song, I want to take silence and prayer. And we prayed a lot already, and that's good. Let's pray some more. And I want to just take a little silence at this point, and I want to encourage you to to pray one of three things. If you don't actually know Jesus and that idea of the Spirit being over your head and being in you seems so foreign and you feel estranged from your Heavenly Father today, then start with that. When When we have a time of silence, pray for forgiveness of sins and that Jesus would forgive you. Just use those words. If you feel and you know that, yeah, I've said yes to Jesus, but the Spirit just doesn't feel active in me then just ask, God, I want your spirit to work in me. I want to know what that's like. And for those of you that feel the spirit and the the wind of the spirit working through you, pray for everybody else around you in this time of silence. Let's go to prayer. Let's, Let's be silent for a little bit before the Lord. God, for your spirit, we pray for the wind to blow through this place. We pray, Father, that your son would forgive us and heal us. We pray that we would heed the words of the apostle Peter on the first Pentecost, that we would repent, that we would turn from everything that allows us to walk in a direction other than your way. And that by the power of the Spirit, we would experience your renewal from inside out and walk only in your way. And when we step off that path, God, that we would know your forgiveness.
Lord, send your wind through this place. Heal us. Give us new life. Amen.